0: We have uh, probably, I think it was April, we started this series uh, called Best Life, The Best Life, and it's kind of a play on some things in the culture, but the emphasis we're trying to make is there's no better life to have than the life God has ordained for his people, and we want to submit ourselves to that, and it's only possible, first, because of the gospel, what Christ has accomplished for us, secondly, as we understand wisdom, From God. And so this series has been this time spent in the Old Testament looking at wisdom literature. And we began the psalm or we begin the Psalms today. We've gone through many, they're on podcasts. You can go listen to them. But Psalms are unique in a lot of ways. And so as I thought through like how do we introduce this massive book in one sermon, I decided it was just gonna have to be three hours. So I'm just kidding. Why is that funny? You guys should be excited about it. It's not going to be that long, I don't think, um, but I, I want to start with this thought, I want to start with this compulsion that I think every human being has. This, I think every single person who's ever lived has this sort of feeling in touch with society around us. There's this sort of tension, this love and hate tension, this good versus evil, right versus wrong sort of tension that we just know and we're fascinated by. We make movies about it. We write songs about it. We, we engage in it. We don't like it if we're in the middle of the tension, but we like to observe it and study it and think about it. And, and, and though we don't fully understand it, we long for justice. And that is the, the wrong things being made right. The, the, the evil things being made good. We long for it our, in, within our being. You don't have to intellectually even think about it. We just long for things to be right because we sense things aren't right. There's this tension that we all feel. And so we come up with a lot of ways to try to resolve the tension. Most of them are idol worship and destroying our bodies and our souls by trying to fix the tension there's only, there's only one true fix for the tension. We celebrate mercy, we celebrate grace, especially if it has to do with our own condemnation. Like We want justice unless it's our justice. Then we want mercy and we want grace. These deep concepts of righteousness and grace are the means by which our God reveals himself to us. The creator, the ruler of everything is glorified in this tension. And, and he ultimately will receive all glory in the end. It's beyond our comprehension in in a thousand ways, more than a thousand ways. It's beyond us, but we feel it. And when we feel it, it comes out in song. It comes out in relationship, the messiness, the goodness of relationship. There's something stirred up within us to praise whatever it is that can fix this problem. So we worship drugs and alcohol and and sex and we worship money and and we worship relationships we we want to praise whatever whatever it is we think is going to fix the tension and that feeling is a gift from god his glory his majesty the allure of his grace is so compelling that if we truly know him we would worship him despite everything else Everything could be burning around us. Our suffering could be deep and profound beyond what anyone could understand. You could feel so alone and forsaken. But if you know this grace and this goodness, you worship him because that's how good he is. And it's a gift that we feel that tension. And all over scripture, we see this played out again and again in the different lives of individuals throughout the text. And all of it points to one thing, one event in history that that all of this swings on like a hinge. It's Jesus on his cross. The place where mercy met justice. The place where evil met good and right met wrong. Jesus is everything because of that. And we feel it. And we want to intellectualize it and try to think out the the systems of our theology and plan it all out perfectly so we have an answer and that's good and right but if you don't feel it you're not going to you're not going to know how to worship him so virtually every emotion you could possibly experience is expressed in the psalms and though they were written long before jesus hung on the cross the psalms are words given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to sing of the glory of our King. And so you would think they're important. Like you would think we need to invest some time into studying them, not just in a sermon series where we skim over a few of them, but deeply, deeply root ourselves in the goodness that we find in the Psalms. And, and I think sometimes Psalms, songs and poetry in general can be confusing and and, and not al- always like resonate with us if we approach it didactically or sorry I don't know why I use words like that if we approach it systematically like we're going to try to teach it like just intellectualize it but if we sit in it and we breathe it in and we breathe it out we find life we find hope we find joy and, and I think songs and poetry can speak with a tone that resonates far deeper than any principle or story could ever accomplish. But we have to sit in it. And it's not that hard. People love music, right? Anyone in here hate music? Okay, I was nervous somebody was gonna hate music. No one hates music, at least not in this room. No one hates music, maybe you like different kinds of music, but we love it, and especially music that moves us It's God's design that we would be emotionally engaged with it. And I think the same is true, not just for the Psalms but for all of his word. It's no wonder that the biggest, most quoted, and arguably the, the most beloved book of the Bible is a book of songs. The symbols and the imagery paints pictures for us, the readers, to draw into the emotional experience of the writer and join in with Israel as they sang these songs thousands of years ago. We, we're joining in to this language of the soul singing to our creator. So if you, if you read it just for information, you're, you're likely going to be bored or lost. But if you pause and reflect and meditate and allow it to read you, allow yourself to be emotionally engaged with it, then you'll discover depth and beauty, God and his love. It's good. All right. Sorry, I didn't get got really heavy really fast. Let's take a breath. What's so beautiful about the Psalms is they also help you find yourself. And I think we all need that. These, these songs are rich with reminders of perspective. So King David wrote. Many of them, almost half of them, King David wrote. And he was a very emotional guy. He did some crazy things, if you read in Scripture, things that people just don't do. Mistakes he made were deep and profound, and they cost him big. And he was broken before God again and again, humbled by those experiences. And that is what made David a man after God's heart. That is what made him, someone got to a point in life who realized, I'm dependent on this God. Again and again, he would puff himself up with pride and be humbled. This is the life of David, and it's expressed in the Psalms. Many accuse him of having multiple personalities or something. By the way, he says, God, you'll never forsake me. You love me. There's nothing greater. And immediately into where have you gone? Why are you not here? I thought you were going to be here. What's wrong with you? Like, this is David throughout the text. And if you're honest with yourself, I think this is us throughout life. And so we can take a breath and be thankful that we are not alone in our experiences. And God saw fit long before any of us were here to, to let us know that by these songs. Not only does it show us who we are, but it shows us who God is. So in this comparison, it's important. We're finite. He's infinite, in case you didn't know. We're, we're un, unstable in so many ways. We're anxious. We're fragile. We're fickle. He's unchanging. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's forever faithful. We're human beings. He's the sovereign king of the universe. And this is painted throughout the Psalms. We don't need to know verse-by-verse historical context. In fact, we can't. Most of the Psalms, I think around 14 or somewhere around a dozen of the Psalms, give us in the text some historical background. So we can say, okay, this is where it happened. This is what was going on. But mostly, It's just these broad pictures of this is Israel's experience. And these are expressions, corporate expressions and personal expressions of what they're feeling. And what's most important is not understanding the historical context, but feeling it. Because it matters. I think a lot of times we disqualify emotions, but we must lean into them. Understand the emotions of the writer. Understand the emotions of the singers. And understand our own emotions as we approach the text. And so this... this Book of the Bible has 150 chapters. And we are to know them. All of them. And some of them are really long. We're to know all of them. But not just intellectually, but to feel them. So I want to encourage you, if you're not already encouraged, dive into the Psalms as often as you possibly can. Soak in them. Dig roots deep into the truth that's found there. And And be refreshed daily by the truth of God's word. And I think it's helpful to know that uh, that men and women throughout history of the church have been doing this. Tim Keller says, just before this quote, he said, this is what men of God have always done. And he says, we are not simply to read the Psalms. We are to be immersed in them so that they profoundly shape how we relate to God. They are the divinely ordained way to learn devotion to our God. The more we understand these songs, the more we understand the composer. So, that's Introduction to Psalms. I want to offer you today not just a, uh, a, a sermon. I want to get to preach because I love to preach. But I want to offer you today kind of a, a framework for your personal devotion in the Psalms. With this in mind, that it's important we do that my hope is that we could all walk away with a framework for here's what the Psalms are and here's how they speak to my soul. And so we're going to do some work to kind of lay out the structure of the book, and it's really big. So I, it's very brief of a structure in comparison to how big the book is. So I, I, I encourage you to do your own work. Study this. Get a commentary. Ask me for one. I'll let you borrow one. Unless you're Joseph McClung, because he doesn't give them back. And, and dig deep. And know this text. I, I can't. I don't want to keep repeating myself, but it's important. We know it. And the hope is that we will take what we learn here today and, and develop practices in our life that would enrich us as we're on mission as a church. It's not just about your personal growth, but that we have a mission before us and we need to be sure of who we are and who our God is. So understanding the arrangement. So despite my time in high school in the drama club, I was Danny Zuko in Greece. I don't know if I have that look. <sighs> Despite my time in drama club, I really don't understand music, musicals, all that well. I don't really get how they're put together and how the musical themes connect and all that. I, I'm interested, but not that interested. So I haven't div- invested myself in that. But I recalled a quote from another great theologian and musician, uh, Dunder Mifflin's warehouse manager, and now he works for Athlete. Daryl Philbin, as he's attending a local showing of Sweeney Todd, says, shh, if we don't listen to the overture, we won't recognize the musical themes when they come back later. This is deep. Sounds like it's not, but it is. The, we have to recognize this is all connected. It's a lot going on in Psalms but it's all connected, and how we know it's connected is by this beautiful overture. It sets the tone, Psalm chapter 1. So I'm just going to read the psalm to you. We're not going to spend time preaching through it, but I want to read it to you and highlight how it's tied to the book. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves do not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's the ESV, the the Christian Standard Bible in this last verse says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. We are dependent upon the Lord. We're wicked or We're righteous. These are things laid out in this text. We're either wicked or we're righteous. And how that's accomplished is about delight in the Lord's instruction. Do we delight in His instruction? Living every day, sitting in it like a tree that's by the water. A tree that prospers by the river. A tree that produces fruit because of the nutrients it takes in. Or are we fragile and dried up like chaff that's blown away when the wind us through here is what psalms is telling you you can either be devoted to these instructions you can soak in it or be detached and dry up that's going to determine whether you're you're wicked or you're righteous there's a lot to unpack in that in that chapter and we're not going to get into it but that's the, the premise of it all this is the tone set The creation is in there, the fall is in there, the rescue is in there, the provision, the the life, the abundance, the struggle, the suffering, it's all in there. This covenant promise to bring suffering to an end is here. The whole of redemptive history is here. The final restoration is there. With all the associated emotions in between all of that, it's all here, given to us in a song to sing an overture, so we can pick it up as we're reading the rest of the Psalms. This Psalter is arranged in five separate but interconnected books. And the gospel song that we just talked about, gospel song, not like, you know, gospel song, but the this, this song about the gospel that we just talked about is laced throughout each of these books. It interconnects all five books of Psalms. So we call it the book of Psalms, but really it's a, a Psalter made up of Five books and each are punctuated with this doxology. The fifth book is Psalms 150, which is this grand doxology for the the whole work altogether. Psalms 1 emphasized this the blessing that comes to those who delight in the law, that is the Torah, the, the instruction, which is the five books of Moses. But likewise, the five books of Psalms are for our instruction. They're to edify us, not intellectually necessarily, but They edify our souls. They enable us to live our best life. Instruction that helps us live in abundance, the abundance that Christ gained for us. Maybe not that your bank account is full, but that your heart is full, that your mind is full, that your soul is satisfied. And maybe your bank account's full, and I want to talk to you later about tithing. Each book is, has a general feel and framework. So I'm going to offer you a general feel and framework for each book. But every single book isn't necessarily written chronologically. In fact, it could have been written across history of the Old Testament. And they were arranged probably around the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, if you know Old Testament. They were arranged into these five books in accordance with the songs that Israel sang as God's people. And so the arrangement is as inspired, I believe, as the words. Not all scholars agree that the arrangement matters. They think it's you can just pick and choose, but I think the arrangement matters, so I'm going to quickly tell you the f- general feel and framework, but just know within each of these books, there's all kinds of psalms, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So Bic, book Bic, <laughs> book one, chapter one through 41 is book one of psalms, and it's, a, it's all about establishing the, God's kingdom, he, and a kingdom is going to be established, and the people of God think, physical reality we need our king but it's really about God's kingdom being established how he will rule and reign over all things because he already does and it will be through an anointed king in the line of David that that is accomplished so one who delights in the word of God perfectly one who has never failed to obey the instruction will accomplish the establishment of these king this kingdom and that's implicit throughout that whole book it's all about prospering book two which is Chapters 42 through 72 takes takes into account the covenant God has with his people being transferred from David to Solomon, his son, which draws attention to the ultimate desire that it can't be just this one guy. It's got to be something beyond that. So it's not that God's giving us these manly kings, but that God himself is king in establishing his kingdom. That's all throughout that book of Psalms. And then book three is is 73 to 89. Similarly, we're talking about Solomon and Israel's rebellion. If you didn't know, Solomon really messed some things up at the end. Whew, it went really bad for Israel. They got taken into captivity, into Babylon. Go back, I don't know how many years ago it was. We went through Daniel as a church, and we talked more specifically about that. It's during this time that, uh, that the, Psalm, the songs in book three were so important to the people of God. But it ends kind of on this crisis point in chapter 89, starting around verse 38 there. It gets to a point where the people start to sing. I can't even imagine them singing this, but they start to sing, God, you broke your covenant. God, you failed us. God, what happened? Because Israel remembers, God said he'd always have a king on the throne to lead them. He, He said he would never fail them, but it looks like according to their circumstances, he's failing. Where's the king, is their question. And it comes out in that that chapter. It's crazy to think you would sing to God like that, but certainly we're free to do so. Apparently, it's in the Bible. Marginalized, after Babylon, marginalized, the people of God were trying to reestablish culture that was stripped away from them because they were forced to assimilate into Chaldean culture. They were trying to reestablish themselves, but they didn't feel like a people. Things weren't what they thought they would be when they heard all the promises of God. So where is the king is a reasonable question. Where is the hope? Where is the future? God said some things and he's not answering those things. Does anybody resonate with these sort of feelings? It seems like life isn't what we thought it was going to be. And so they're writing some songs that come out in this communal lament and that's how book three ends. And then book four and five filled with all kinds of hope and wonder and beauty, books, books four and five, uh, speak to the instruction that we need when we don't have a king. So the messianic king isn't there, so God gives his people songs to sing, songs of hope when the king isn't before them. Specifically, book four, I think is the heart of it all, chapters 90 through 106. The songs are about faith, faith in God, the God of promises, a God who's faithful to fulfill those promises, even if it's not what we thought it would be. When, our, when we look at the promises of God and it's not lining up with our life experiences, these are the songs we sing. It doesn't feel like he's king. We sing these songs. And, and when there's no king for Israel, they repeat things like, you'll find all over this part of the book, the Lord reigns. We don't have a king. The Lord reigns is again and again throughout those chapters. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He won't forsake us. His love endures forever. They're begging God. They're begging the Lord to show himself to be who he says he is. And they're repeating it again and again, and they're begging their soul. There's also Psalms about singing to your own soul Sing praises to God. Bless the name of the Lord. Oh, my soul, bless his name. These songs from pain, these songs from not knowing what to do come out in these ways all throughout this part of the book. Repetition and affirmation. Repetition and affirmation. Repetition and affirmation. That's Repetition and affirmation. So it repeats affirmations. Repetition and affirmation. It can seem like Please stop saying that. But in Scripture, it reminds us of this woefully necessary truth. We live by faith in the promises of God, not by the reality of our circumstances. Because the promises of God are a truer reality than our circumstances. We think this is real, that's why we have the emotions we have. But God has plans. God has purpose beyond anything we could ever know. So the Lord reigns. He won't forsake us. His love endures. Some of, some of you need that today, and I know you do. His promises are true for you. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And then book five continues this, uh, but more than just describing faith or, or repeating these phrases to re-establish faith. Book five gives us some, some clear ways to live out our faith. It's about obedience. He he wants us to know not just believe, but your belief should lead to something. So how we respond to the truth matters. What do, what we do matters. So you might know this is chapters 107 to the very end, 150. You might know 119 is in there. That's a massive book that kind of follows the Hebrew alphabet. these chunks of scripture and all of it is about loving the word of God and being obedient to it and and just after that we have the songs of ascent the psalms of ascent are about the people of God making their journey to Jerusalem that was at a higher elevation so ascent and they're singing these songs of praise and hope and some of them are laments they're just being honest about who God is as they make this journey to sacrifice to the God of all And we can know the stuff and feel the feels, but if we're not a people of action, we've missed it. So remember truth, believe truth, and then be moved to the truth and to live the truth out. And as I told you, Psalms 150 is this grand doxology of the whole work. It ends with, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It goes through all these instruments. Praise God. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. It means praise the Lord. So it's the praise the Lord doxology, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, hallelujah, doxology. It's all about praising him, exclamation point. That was a colon, exclamation point. It's all about praising him. Understanding this collection as a whole is helpful for sensing what it is the author was trying to say, for sensing what it is the people were singing about, and for our circumstances, then we cross this bridge into our context, into the experiences we have, into who we know God to be, and all of that is through the the lens of the gospel. So it's necessary for every single psalm. There's some psalms that are called messianic psalms. They're all about Jesus. I don't actually like that term because truth is all psalms are messianic psalms. Some are very explicitly about him, but all of them lead us to the throne. All of them lead us to the foot of the cross. All of them point to who Jesus is and what He's accomplished. In another way, these things can be grouped are by genre. So this is the last part, and then we're going to look at very briefly Psalm one sixteen, just so we can feel it in context. So the genres um, matter. Uh, so we have country, reggae, metal, hip hop. Those aren't those aren't Psalm genres. These. These genres matter, not just because country, reggae, metal, and hip-hop have different sounds, they certainly do, not just because they have different sounds, but because they have different life experiences behind the composer, because they have different emotions, because they have emotions, period. Not all music, I don't get country music. I'm just kidding. No offense, it has emotions. I've cried to, no, I haven't. That's a lie. Actually, Tim McGraw, don't take the girl. That's a good song. You got one. All right. These genres aren't just styles and sounds, but lyrically, the content matters. The mood matters. The experience and the worldview of the writer matters. And so Psalms, likewise, have genres. And it's about different people. I told you David wrote a lot of them. Solomon wrote some of them, and then there's various authors that are in there. We just don't know who they are. The little superscript that's above the Psalms, that's actually in the original text. It says some things, like we're about to see in Psalm 16, it's called a a mictum of David. I don't know what that means, but neither do scholars, so it's okay. There's some things that are just kind of mysterious, and that's okay because, like I told you, we don't have to know all the historical context to understand the context of it all. We're being stirred to worship God. So these genres include things like praise hymns, that are all about who God is and that makes him worthy of praise. So you are always faithful. I will always praise you. And then other Psalms are more like, where are you, God? Why did you abandon me? If you are light, then why are things so dark? If you're for me, why does it feel like you're against me? If you're good, why does it feel like I'm surrounded by evil? If you're in control, well, everything is kind of, what's a good word? I don't want to say that. S-U-C-K-S word, but that's what I'm thinking. If you're in control of everything, why does everything feel this way? Some psalms come across that way. These are psalms of lament. And, and I'll point out they're holy, righteous complaints. and We'll talk more about that in weeks to come. And then there are psalms of thanksgiving. So songs of praise are about who God is. Songs of thanksgiving is about what God has done. These are kind of big categories that fit a lot of things because there's also this personal psalms, corporate psalms, royal psalms, psalms of wisdom, psalms of prayer that breaks down even further to supplication, adoration, contrition. Like there's a lot of genre flexibility but these big ideas of praise and thanksgiving and lament are kind of major. So if you understand those you can get some framework and that's throughout each of those five books. And all of this we find The highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And we need to know that. And it matters because the fullness of life, the abundance of life, your best life is only going to be lived if you understand both the sweet things and the bitter things. Both the highest highs on top of the hilltop, basking in the sun and the depths of the dark valleys where you feel alone and naked and afraid. These both matter because they fill in who you are as a human being and they show you who God is because in the valleys and on the hilltops, we look to him. So no one knows us better than Jesus. And this is the culmination of things. Perhaps the most important things about the Psalms, more than the books, more than the genre, the most important thing about the Psalms is they all are about Jesus. They're understanding that Jesus affirms every emotion you feel. Some of you in here are sad. Some of you are mad. Some of you are bored. Some of you just don't care that much about this whole religion thing. Some of you feel like, I'm going to go through the motions of Christianity because that's what everyone around me expects. I'm going to show up and nod my head like, I think the Psalms are good news, but I'm really not that into it. And we need to be honest about these things and know that Jesus hears and affirms all of it. He knows it. He's felt it. God came down, put on flesh and felt what you feel. He longs to deliver you from whatever it is you're in. He's made available this freedom in the gospel alone and everything points to Jesus. So when you read the Psalms, you aren't led to worship anything else but Jesus. Now, as a way of closing, I want to demonstrate this. Psalm 116. All right. It's important that we go through these Psalms with a, a right pace. So I'm going to invite you in to look at this. And I'm going to read it in a way that we can reflect. Psalm 116, a mitcom of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So immediately we recognize the dependence, the safety, the security, the joy and submission to God. There's nothing good without him. Verse three. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offering of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Goodness is found in God and his people. There are other options out there to find a light, but it's only going to be found in Him and with His people. There's no other God worth dying for. Verse 5 The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Provision and providence, He sets boundaries but they're for your good, and you see them as good. They're beautiful gifts, and he himself is your portion and your cup, the food and the drink. He's satisfied. He's your your sustenance. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The commitment to God is this praise, this obedience. He is the goal He set before us. We're pursuing Him. We have strength when we do that. He's at our side. That gives us strength. And nothing can shake us. Nothing shakes us. Nothing shakes us because God is at our side. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of my life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's what I here's what I gather from this very brief psalm. God will bring his righteous ones through all of life, through everything you could experience in life, and even through death. Into his presence, where we will find fullness of joy, where we will find pleasures that last forever, forevermore, so forever and then more somehow. The this, this satisfaction is unimaginable, the depth of goodness we cannot comprehend, but we can sing about it. The promise is dependent Upon our obedience, though. So how do, we, how do we live in this? We have to be obedient. So this gets kind of weird because finding refuge in him, forsaking others, forsaking other gods, keeping him forever before us is a command here that we're singing. And it's contingent. So if we don't obey this, then we don't get the security. We don't get the fullness of joy. We don't get the pleasures forevermore. But if we stop with that thought, we have religion not Christianity. The promise is dependent on our ability to obey, and it's impossible for us to obey this. We must remain faithful, and we've already failed at that. It's true of David only because of one thing. See, what has just been sung and written by the the King David, we know, because we know the story of David, that this isn't him. Like, he wasn't this faithful guy. Moreover, he's dead, and he's still dead. There's a grave. David's bones are in it. So what does verse 10 mean if it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol? That's the grave. Or let your holy ones see corruption. What does it mean for David to write that? Is he a liar? Because the Jews had an idea of afterlife, but they didn't know this. Doesn't it seem like he's lying? He's lying. If he's saying that about himself, I think, I think we should be gracious to David. I think he knows something of God's love, even though he knows he's going to die. He knows something of God's love that it's too strong for the grave to win. He senses death can't be the final word. Moreover, he knows because in 2 Samuel, Nathan prophesies to him about the coming king. So it sounds like David believes in the resurrection. Now, I'm not the only one who thinks this, and in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter, we spent some time in Acts towards the end of of the summer in our vision series, we spent some time in Acts talking about the end of that chapter 2, where Peter has proclaimed the gospel, and and then he says, here's what the church is. Well, Peter says says in Acts chapter 2, 24, about Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then he goes on in 25 through 28 to quote Psalm 16. And, and from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's a direct quote of Psalm 16. And Peter says in 29 through 32, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. He's preaching Acts chapter, I mean Psalms chapter 16. And then he says, I'll say to you about David, he was died and he was buried in his tomb, and he's with us. To this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And this is a quote of verse 10 from Psalm 16, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he nor did his flesh see corruption. According to Peter, according to David, He was a mere shadow of what was to come. And that is something called typography. It's looking at Old Testament with this thing in this thing of transition in mind. What happened to Moses and to Abraham and to David and and to Daniel, what happened to these major figures throughout the Old Testament were real incidences. They really happened, but all of them point forward to Jesus. It's fascinating theologically to study something like that. But why does it matter for us? Why does it matter that Psalm 16 points to Jesus? Why did I waste time talking about that if it's just theological? It matters because the promises of chapter 16 in Psalms aren't true for you. They're true for Jesus. They aren't true for David. They're true for Jesus. And if you don't get that when you're reading through the Psalms, You're reading lies. Don't go home and tweet out, Kendrick said the Bible's a lie. If you don't know Old Testament, if you don't know Psalms through the framework of gospel, if you can't see Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, it's not true for you. He's talking about himself. David's talking about himself, yes, but he's pointing us and all who sang that song to his descendant, the true king, Jesus. It's fascinating, but it's good for you. It's good for your soul. Don't get stuck with it being fascinating. It's good for your soul to believe it, and that enables your obedience because Jesus did it all perfectly. We don't have a refuge in God. Our maximum delight is a shallow, temporary high. Our path is exhaustion, anxiety, this unknown mystery. The path that we have is leading us to death our enemy conquers us our souls are abandoned to the grave death wins unless god steps down takes on flesh lives perfectly hangs on a cross looking forward to you knowing him and in that moment when justice met mercy in that moment on the cross jesus creator king of all became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, says the Apostle Paul. And because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, our Father looks down and doesn't see someone believing lies. He doesn't see the sinner that we are. He sees Jesus. And because he sees Jesus, he makes us his own. And when we submit ourselves to the authority of that God, he does this work in us. So it wasn't just you've been justified, but you are being sanctified. The life we now live in Christ, we live by faith in the Son of God. It's not your life, it's Jesus' life. And you're living as the body of Christ in this context on a mission. Submit it to the law of God, submit it to the promises of God, knowing they're true. And when we don't believe they're true, we're free to lament but it points us back to a God who always speaks truth. He's always for our good. He's faithful always, and all the people should praise him because he's worthy of our praise, not just for who he is, but for what he has done and is faithful to do. He's not given up on us. So why would we ever think for a second it's right for us to give up on him? And it's only true if first we see Jesus. He accomplished all of it. Because we could never accomplish it. Take a breath. It's not on you. You're free in this. But clothed in Christ, we move forward in obedience. Because Psalm 16 isn't true for those not in Christ, but it's also not true for those who live in disobedience. Because like I said, it's required we be obedient. The the Savior that Christ is saved us from the disqualification of our sin. And he enables us to continue on in obedience. So the obedience matters. Now every promise is true. The greatest pleasures you'll ever experience in life, the most beautiful sights, sounds, the most moving experiences are all a far off shadow of what it'll be like to experience the fullness of joy and sit at the right hand of God with pleasures forevermore. And it's only possible through Jesus because he didn't stay dead. He got up out of the grave victorious over sin and death. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace in this. Uh, It's a lot to break down this massive book of of Scripture, but you are faithful in all of this. I pray that you would help us to digest what we've heard and, and process what's true. Protect us from the things that might cause harm. Draw us nearer to you, deeper into your truth. God, make it true today that everyone in here who sings these songs would be honest. If we don't believe them, reveal it to us, convict us of sin. God, I'm asking you to save the lost. And for every saint in the room, God, restore to us the joy of our salvation, that we would long to praise you, that we'd sense the tensions of life and feel the freedom we have in Christ. I don't know where everybody is this morning, but I know that there are dark things. I know that there are deep things, there are wounds, there's exhaustion, there's loss, there's pain. Father, we know it's all too real. But we know your reality is more true. So Help us fix our eyes on Christ. And let the things of this world fade away as we run this race with the endurance, seeking to see the lost saved, worshiping you in all of life. In Jesus' name, amen.